Father in heaven, we're in love with your presence. And we're in love with you. Because where you are, hearts are healed. Broken lives are made new. Victory in Jesus has come to us, Father. And we are so humbled and so thankful that you would stoop so low just to save us because you love us. So, Father, as we come before your throne tonight, as we have come before your throne, we ask that you would accept our offerings in music. We ask that you would accept our broken lives tonight and that you would heal us and that you would make us new, that you would touch our hearts with the words that will be spoken in just a couple minutes, that you would anoint the lips of who speaks, and that you would anoint our hearts with your Holy Spirit and let us be open to what you have to share with us specifically, Lord, because you have called each of us to a specific purpose and you want us to make a choice. You want us to choose to accept that purpose that you have given to us. So I thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together tonight. And again, I pray for your mercy and your grace as we are but poor little children coming to sit at your feet. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, ladies. Well, good evening. Wow. Good evening. It is a blessing to be here with you this evening. And I, I want to invite you, you guys were so kind and so gracious last night to come and sit a little closer for Elder Gallimore. And I recognize I'm not the conference president, but I'm wondering if I might uh, Im- impose upon your mercy and graciousness and just ask you to come sit a little closer. We're a few in numbers, and so it'll, it'll save my neck a little bit of a workout if you, if you come and just sit with us. And uh, I would invite you to do so if, you're, if you don't mind. I want to share with you tonight, and I've counted a privilege to be able to do so. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Pastor Daryl Bentley, and I have the privilege of serving here in the Michigan Conference, going on some nine years now. So I love being in the Michigan Conference. I'm not originally from Michigan. Uh, You may detect a slight accent. That's completely your hearing. I do not have an accent. But uh, if you think that you hear something, it might be because I'm from North Carolina. And so uh, you may catch me occasionally coming out with some Southernisms. And uh, I do claim to be bi-dialectical. I do speak English and Southern. And uh, so I can communicate in in most areas of the country. So that's a a tremendous blessing. But uh, we count it an honor to be here serving in Michigan to be able to spend time with Michiganders. Michiganders are some hardy folk. Have you noticed that? I mean, you guys survive these winters and just act like it's regular. You know, for, for those of us that are imports, um, we have had to adapt to these things. I remember the first year coming to Michigan and I had to, I had to buy a winter coat. I, I mean, I did not remember. I, I got by down in North Carolina most winters with just a sweatshirt. Um, so had to had to invest in a winter coat and learn to dress in layers. So because you may be freezing cold in the morning and sweating in the afternoon in Michigan, isn't that strange? We've seen it just this camp meeting, haven't we? 
There's been nights where you're laying in your camper shivering, and then Sabbath, I thought if I was a candle, I would have melted into a puddle. But uh, it's a blessing to be here, and we, we love serving in the Michigan Conference, love serving the church families we've had the honor to serve, and so it's a blessing to be able to share with you tonight. Now, this evening, I'm going to share with you my spiritual journey. I'll tell you a little bit about my childhood and some of those things, and my goal tonight is not to just tell you a story. I want you to keep in mind our theme for this young adult camp meeting. We're asking the question, will you choose to own your faith? Will you own it? Will you take ownership? Or will you sit on the sidelines of a spiritual experience with God? And of course, my desire is that somehow tonight, through my testimony, at least this portion of it, that um, you would choose to own your faith as well. And so, would you bow your heads with me? I just want to ask the Lord to speak through me uh, before I begin to share with you. Loving Father, I thank you so much that we can be here tonight, that I have the opportunity to share with my friends, with those that are gathered. And Lord, I don't want anything about me to be glorified. I want you to be glorified. I want those that are here listening, those that may hear this via recording, to seriously take a look at their faith, at their journey, and look at how you have been leading in their life and ask themselves the question, will I own my faith or will I simply watch others have an experience with God? So Father, tonight I ask these blessings and these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am from North Carolina, but I was not born there. I was, ma'am. No problem. No, you too. You too. Yeah, we've done all we can to help marriages. So, blessings to you. I was born, not in North Carolina, I was born in Virginia. In Manassas, Virginia. Famous for some various battles in our country's history. But, before I was born, my dad decided that he did not want to be married to a woman with children. And so my dad left before I was ever born. And my mother who was living with her parents in Virginia, moved back to North Carolina when her mom and dad moved back to North Carolina. Interestingly enough, my grandfather and his family had moved to Virginia some 20 years previous, running from the law on alcohol-making charges. So I come from an esteemed background of moonshiners. My grandfather actually did time in prison for running shine and making moonshine. And of course, you know anything about NASCAR. NASCAR was born out of the moonshine industry. Um, so I come from that esteemed heritage. But the heat had subsided. My grandfather felt that it was safe to go back to North Carolina, and so there we went. So less than a year old, we moved back to Carolina, and there I am living with my mom and my grandparents up until the time I was about three years old. About the time I was three years old, my mom thought it was a good thing to get remarried. And so she marries my stepdad. And my stepdad was a pretty nice guy at first. He liked to go fishing, and I, I wasn't much of a fisherman, still am not. But he would take me fishing and do these different things, and it seemed like life was going to be wonderful. That was until about four years later, along comes my baby brother. And for some reason, something changed drastically in the relationship between me and my stepfather. 
for some reason, my stepfather began to treat me very badly, very poorly. He began to put me down. He began to make fun of me for different reasons. He didn't want to spend time with me. In fact, he would try to farm me off to my grandparents. And interestingly enough, my relationship with my grandparents flourished, and I dreaded being at home. <laughs> Go figure, right? My grandfather ran a junkyard. He was very industrious, wasn't he? From moonshining to junkyarding. And, and I think the junkyarding was a way to avoid paying taxes. I, I don't know that for sure, but uh, I love my, love my grandpa there before he passed away. And, but I grew up around this junkyard. And so I grew up playing in automobiles. They, all these cars my grandpa would bring in, and I would go through them. I found all kind of neat things in junk cars. Money, pocket knives, all kind of things people would lose in cars or leave them. And it really paid off because... Now I can work on almost any vehicle. Uh, in fact, just the other day, Pastor Herthel and I were traveling and my Jeep broke down and we fixed it in the parking lot of a Kmart. So those skills have come in handy. But things were really bad at home. In fact, it got worse as I got older. My stepdad became more fierce, might be a good word, in his, in his attacks. And as a kid, I, I still have a, a large head, but as a kid, my head did not match the size of my body. You know, my, body my body called up to my head. But as a kid, I had this big head, little body, and my dad liked to point that out. In fact, he used to tell me that he thought my head was shaped like a guitar pick. And so can you imagine where my self-worth was growing up? I thought that I would never amount to anything. In fact, he would go so far as to tell me that. He would tell me, you're useless, you're worthless, you'll never do anything in life, you'll never amount to anything, and, and I, don't know why, I don't even know why you were even born. These kind of things. And what kind of mentality do you think that develops in someone? And you just think that you're the scourge of the earth. But subconsciously, I desperately desired to succeed. And so at school, I found a place where I could excel. And so I tried the hardest as I could to get the best grades. And I'm telling you, without me even knowing it, God blessed me with a good academic understanding. But my entire identity was wrapped up in what my grades were. I remember the sixth grade. We got our report cards. And not only on report cards do you get grades about your various subjects, you get marks about your behavior, right? And I remember getting that report card, and the grades were, were perfect, all A's. But then I looked at the behavior column, and instead of having the S for satisfactory, there was a U for unsatisfactory. And I remember in the sixth grade, now this sounds crazy, but notice how messed up your mind can get. That one U on my report card, unsatisfactory, I asked to go to the restroom at school, and I went to the restroom and I cried sitting in the bathroom stall. Straight A's, but I had a U. Do you see how messed up my mind was at this point? My entire identity was wrapped up in whether or not someone could pat me on the back and it all be perfect. Because I knew I would never get that at home. I knew I would never get that from my stepdad. Well, I began to have, find some friends beyond the sixth grade. And some of those friends helped me to realize that my stepdad 
did not know everything. In fact, they helped me realize a lot of what he told me that I was wasn't true. And so the pendulum of my understanding, the pendulum of my attitude swung from being someone who was afraid to even look at people. Now try to imagine that. I was afraid I couldn't make eye contact with you at that time. I would have been afraid, you're female, forget it. I couldn't have spoken to you, it would have put me in a puddle. Just the way it was. But as my attitude began to change, I was still scared of women, but I realized that my stepdad was wrong. So I developed a very bad attitude. In fact, all of this anger, all of this tension, all of this just hatred that was in my heart needed an outlet. My stepdad was too big to take out, right? So I found another way to get rid of it. I would get in fights at school. And I developed a love for fighting. I would look for fights. I would find other people fighting and try to get in on their fight. That's how much I enjoyed it. Because it was an outlet to be able to get rid of some of this anger, some of this hatred that I had in my heart because of what was happening at home. So, of course, that led to various suspensions. In-school suspension, out-of-school suspension. And I never could figure it out. You didn't want to be at school, so you get in a fight, and then they let you go home from school. I always thought that was a great idea. You didn't get your grades done, right? And because of that, my grades began to slip. I never failed anything. The Lord had blessed me. I didn't know it with a very strong ability to do academic things. And so even sleeping in class, I passed all my classes. Even missing class from being suspended. I, the Lord blessed me. I was able to pass all my classes. But it gave me a really bad attitude. Well, here I make it to the ninth grade. Ninth grade, and I was a messed up teenager. Hated my home life. Hated my stepfather. Looked for any fight I could be a part of. And there I am, a messed up teenager. This time, by this time, I figured out my stepdad didn't like long hair. So guess what kind of hair I wanted? Long hair. And here I had long hair, probably almost to my shoulder blades. I'll try to get your head around that. My wardrobe at this time consisted of heavy metal t-shirts. In fact, I owned, at that point, every Metallica t-shirt ever, ever made. There were 17 at that point. I don't, they don't, know, don't care anymore. But I had those 17 heavy metal t-shirts and two pair of blue jeans. That was my entire wardrobe. And I had an old army Vietnam era filled jacket that I would wear. Well, there I am in the ninth grade, scared to death of women, looking for any fight, bad attitude, shy and weird and just so messed up. And as I'm there in class one day, I'm in ninth grade government and economics, and in walks this girl. It was hat day at school. I told you this a little bit the other day, right, in the marriage seminar? Well, it was hat day because it was spirit week. And, and when I was going to school, I'm 42. I just turned 42 June 5th. So you can kind of do the math and see when I was going through school, late 80s there. When I was going to school, you couldn't wear ball caps to school. It was considered disrespectful, but this one time a year, during Spirit Week, they would have hat day and everybody could wear their favorite ball cap. Everybody knew that it was ball caps that you wore on hat day except this girl. She walks in with a sombrero on. 
and we still have that sombrero. It's a beautiful hat, but it's huge. This big black sombrero. And she figures out very quickly she's the only one in the school that does not have a ball cap on. And she desperately tries to get rid of this thing. She puts it in her, tries to put it in her locker. Do you think a sombrero fit in a locker? No. But luckily for her, there was this guy who was kind of a school clown who volunteered to wear it for her all day. So Ginger didn't have to wear this hat. But I, when I saw her, I'm going to say that I fell in love with her instantly. For whatever, you know, when you're in the ninth grade that your estimation of love is. But I was struck with her. And I could not stop thinking about her. But do you think I had the courage to talk to her? Oh, are you kidding me? Forget it. But I had this great idea. I was taking this French class. And it became Valentine's Day. And so in French class, we made French Valentines. And they passed out this one, and we colored them and made them nice. And this one Valentine had a picture of Mickey Mouse handing a heart to Minnie Mouse. And in French, above their heads, it said, J'attime. If you know any French, that means what? I love you. And boy, I snatched up that Valentine, and I got my markers, and... Oh, I had it all nice, and I put a little note in there to who? To Ginger. And then I stuck it in my locker because I was scared to death to give it to her. No way. How would I? I mean, I, she needed it. I wanted her to have it, but I didn't have the courage to give it to her. So I put it in my locker. And when, when I was going to school, in, in that, that particular school, when you got the buses would get there at different times, and so you might get to school 30, 40 minutes early. And so we would walk around the halls in our little groups and our little cliques and try to look cool. Well, I would let Ginger get ahead of me. And I would just kind of, I call it follow her around the halls. I think uh, statutory regulations would probably refer to it as stalking. Uh, more skulking, I, I, I'm not sure. But I, she would walk with her cousin and their little friends. And I would just kind of dreamily walk in the distance behind, afraid to approach her. Well, there was a school dance that was coming up. And I got to thinking, you know, this is my time to make a move. I've got to get my courage up and invite her to the school dance. So I asked her for her phone number. Well, I didn't ask her. I had a friend ask her because I couldn't talk to her. So the friend, who also had class with her in another class, said, hey, do you know Daryl? And Yes, I know Daryl. Well, he'd like your number. Can he have your... Oh, yeah. And so anyway, I got the number. And so then I sat and stared at that number for four days. Scared to death. Hands shaking, palms sweaty. How do I call her? Okay, you just got to do it. You got to call her. If you don't call her, somebody else is going to ask her to the dance. You've got to call her. <sighs> is Ginger there? Who's this? This is Daryl. What do you want? So hoping I can talk to, you know, your voices. I mean, I've just fallen to pieces. And if you ever meet Ginger's dad, his hands, and, and Pastor Corey, testify with me tonight. Am I lying that this brother's hands are about triple what one of mine is? He's a big dude. And when he answers the phone, he doesn't say, hello. He always speaks loudly. And so when he answered the phone, it was, Hello? Instantly, 
Finally, she makes it on the phone. Hi, this is Daryl. Hey. Hello? Yes, yes, I'm here. Make it through this phone call a little ways, and then finally I get the courage. I said, listen, the reason I'm, I'm calling is there's a school dance coming up in two weeks, and would, would you be willing to go to the school dance with me? Now, do you know how much courage it took for me to do that? And what do you think her answer was? No. So I instantly think, man, somebody beat me to her. And so I asked her, I said, did somebody else already ask you? Oh, no. Okay, so nobody asked you? You just, you just don't want to go with me? Well, no, it's, it's not that. Oh, so you do want to go with me? I, I, I do, but my parents won't let me. We don't go to dances. What? Why? Well, they don't like for us to do those sort of things. And besides, it's on Friday night. And I'm thinking, well, when else would they have it? <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, what's, the pro I'm, I'm, what's wrong with Friday night? They always do them on Friday night. It works for everybody. It's the end of the week. You know, school's out. Well, um, and she hem-hauled around, and I kept persisting a little bit, and finally she told me, well, I, I, I'm not going, I can't go to a dance because it's our Sabbath. It's your what? Now you have to realize, guys, I grew up and the only time I heard God's name was when it was taken in vain. Either in my home, directly from my parents, or on the various movies, horror movies, and any other filth that we decided to watch. We didn't go to church unless someone died or got married. And for us it was the same. People dressed up and you got food. That was it. Didn't know anything about church. But the, but the one thing that I did know about church was that everybody went on which day? Well, Sunday. And so she says Sabbath. I said, what's a Sabbath? Well, that's, it's from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And it's when, our, it's when we go to church and she's trying her best. As a 15-year-old girl thrust into the public school world, having always gone to Adventist schools, now trying to explain to this guy that's pursuing her wanting to go to the high school or the junior high dance why she can't go to the dance. Well, finally she gets it all out. And I had even gone so far as, to, well, do you think it would help if I asked your mom and dad if you can go? No, that won't change anything. <laughs> well, long story short, I didn't get to take her to the dance. But she said, let me ask my mom if you can come over. Okay, her mom finally agreed to let me come over. And so I got to thinking, well, these folk are religious folk. I can't go over there in a Metallica t-shirt. Makes sense, right? At least I was smart enough to figure that part out, right? I mean, give me a little credit. So I called my buddy, John. I was like, dude, what do religious people wear? He was a Lutheran. He's supposed to know. He's like, what are you talking about? What do religious people wear? I was like, you know that girl, Ginger? I've been, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about her? Well, her mom said I could come over, but all I've got, I mean, is it okay if I wear my Metallica t-shirts? He said, no, that's probably not a good idea if they're religious folk. 
I said, well, what am I going to do? He said, I'll loan you some clothes. All right. So we had this plan. My buddy John was older than me, and so he had license, and he said, I'll bring you something. Now, you have to remember, I'm from North Carolina, and there's two primary sports teams in college sports in North Carolina. One of them is the Carolina Tar Heels. The other one is the Duke Blue Devils. When I was growing up, you pulled for Duke and anybody playing Carolina. My buddy shows up with a Carolina Tar Heels sweatshirt. But I wore it because I was desperate to impress these religious folk. And he said, I've got something else that you'll probably want just to set it off nicely. And he reaches down in his pocket and he pulls out his gold rope chain necklace. And he says, here, put this on. So here I come over, my one pair of holy jeans, Carolina Tar Heels sweatshirt on, and I'm rocking that gold chain hanging right out like you did in the 80s, right? And so here I make it over to Ginger's house, to these religious folk. And her mom, they had a chicken farm. They had chicken houses, these houses that lay, lay eggs, right? I mean, they had thousands of eggs. And so her mom had just come from the chicken house. I'm all spiffed up, I thought, for these religious folk. And her mom comes smelling like a chicken house and looks at me and says, who are you? Come to find out later on, she knew who I was. She was messing with me. But I figured out, after getting to meet her parents, that if I wanted to spend time with Ginger, it meant going to church. And so another phone call to John. John, what do religious folk wear to church? Well, you're going to need a dress shirt and some dress pants and shoes. I don't have any of that. It's all right, I got you. He and I never realized growing up as best friends that his feet were a full size smaller than mine. This brother had these tiny little baby feet, wore nine and a half shoes, and here I was, an average man, wearing ten and a halfs. So he brings me his white shirt, black pants. He was Lutheran, he wasn't Mormon, but he apparently had a Mormon outfit. And so he brings me these white shirt, black pants, and nine and a half dress shoes. And I squeezed my feet. You talk about the longest Sabbath in history was wearing those black shoes, a full size too small. I remember taking them off at the end of the day. And you ever, you ever, you know how when you've been cramped up and you finally get to expand, how good it feels, but it hurts at the same time? That's the way my feet did. It's like, I quickly sold something and bought a pair of shoes. I couldn't handle that. Well, long story short, I didn't know what to expect from these people. But I got to church. Here I was, this long-haired, bad attitude, messed up teenager in a pair of shoes too small. And then they're talking about folk named David and Moses and Abraham and all these people. I mean, those were the easy names, right? All these other names, you couldn't even pronounce them. And I'm sitting there in a Sabbath school, a teen Sabbath school with Ginger, and I have no idea who they're talking about. Stories that my kids knew by the time they were three, four, five years old, here I am a teenager and had no idea what was being talked about. Make it through Sabbath school, go into the church service, and then the preacher keeps talking about these people. And Ginger's flipping through the Bible and she's sitting there smiling and nodding, and I'm thinking, she knows everything. 
I was in a world that was completely unfamiliar to me. And you have to remember, I came from a background where I expected rejection. I expected judgmental attitudes. I expected to be put down. I expected to be cast aside. And I'm going to tell you something. The folks in that little country church in North Carolina, they didn't see a messed up little teenager. They saw someone for whom Jesus had died. And they welcomed me in. They put their arm around me. They got me involved. They started asking me to do things at the church. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? And, and it was the weirdest thing. I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, why? Why do they care what I'm doing? Why do they care? Why do they want me involved? Why are they doing this? And I couldn't figure it out. It was like, what do they want? They're trying to set me up for something. I was so suspicious. I, I was on my guard. I was waiting. I was waiting for the floor to fall out from under me. When are they going to let me down? When are they going to see all my flaws? When are they going to tell me about them like everybody else I've known has done? But it never happened. Four months later, Ginger dumped me. Devastated. I was so into her. I was so smitten with her. And here's the, here's the wonderful reason that Ginger broke up with me. Are you ready for this? This is, this is rich. You'll love this. Her cousin broke up with her boyfriend. Made about as much sense to me. But she thought, well, if Marsha's going to break up with her boyfriend, well, I probably don't need a boyfriend through the summer. So let's just do that. But I was devastated. Here I finally found some people that were decent to be around. Here I finally found a girl that I could talk to that didn't think I was just totally weird. And now all of a sudden that was pulled out. I was crushed. I kind of slid back into that attitude. Then something strange happened. I had a friend from school. His name was Jason. In fact, his name still is Jason. <laughs> he didn't change it. And he would invite me to come to his church on Wednesday nights. And I didn't care anything about going to church, really, but they had all kind of concrete, and they would let me bring my skateboard and ride it. Any skaters? Anybody, anybody ever done any skateboarding? I love skating. I know you look at me now and you're like, that dude could ride a skateboard? I can still ride one can't do all the tricks I used to could do, but I can still ride one. So I would go on Wednesday nights with Jason to his church, get my mom to drop me off. It wasn't too far, and I would go there and skate and sit through their little meeting they had. Didn't know anything, didn't learn anything. But one Saturday, I was there at the house cleaning things up, and I saw a car coming up our driveway. It was Jason. And he had another kid from church named Cody. And they come up and they see me down at the basement, so they pull around to the basement and they come around and they're just kind of making awkward, weird, small talk. And I'm talking to them and finally I'm like, dude, what, what do you want? I was kind of direct with people. He's like, well, and he kind of swallowed. And you figure at this time, I'm 16, Jason was 16, and he had a kid named Cody that was 14 with him. Here you got two 16-year-olds and a 14-year-old standing in the basement of my parents' home. 
And Jason swallowed, and he said, Daryl, I came by to ask you if you wanted to give your heart to Jesus. And I looked at him like he had three heads. I said, what are you talking about? And you know, that was, you know here he is. He's got, the, can you imagine? 16-year-old kid brings a 14-year-old kid and they're coming to ask you do, you, do you want to give your heart to Jesus? And I ask him, what are you talking about? So what does that even mean? What does it cost? I asked him that. Oh, no, 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 it's free. So what are you talking about? And so he started telling me about how all of us were sinners. All of us had done things that offended God and that those sins had to be paid for. And so... God came as Jesus and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He said, and if you will accept Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins and all the things you've done wrong. And he'll be your savior. And as he's talking, there's just this change that came over him. It wasn't the Jason I was used to talking to. It was just incredible. I'm like, what is happening? But I'm watching, I'm glued to his face. Every word, I'm hanging on it. And I said, how do I do that? What, how do I even, how do, I don't know what to do. He said, well, he said, we can pray right here. He said, and I'll say the prayer, and if, if you'll say it after me, Jesus can come into your heart. He said, do you want that? And I said, yes. So there we are, two 16-year-old kids and a 14-year-old kid we kneel down in the basement of my parents' home and Jason walks me through this sinner's prayer and as he's praying, I'm trying to pray because the floodgates open. I'm thinking about somebody willing to die for me. Are you kidding me? I didn't know anybody that walked across town for me, let alone die for me. When we said that prayer, I did my best to repeat it. He leaned over and gave me a hug and Cody patted me on the back and they drove off. And so there I stood, weeping in my parents' basement, not having any idea what just happened to me. Well, I went on with my life. About a year later, me and my buddy John, you remember nine and a half, little boy feet, we're out riding around hitting junkyards looking for stuff for our cars. We ended up at a junkyard near Ginger's house. And I said, why don't we stop in and say hi to Ginger and her family? Are you sure you want to do that, dude? Because the night she broke up with me, who do you think I called and cried in their ear for an hour? John. I was like, dude, are you sure you want to do that? She, she kind of ripped your heart out. It's like, well, let's just go by there. Well, we went by. They were very happy to see us. Ginger actually was driving a forklift for her dad and she ran over this big iron thing and tore it out of the floor. So, <laughs> kind of funny. Her dad didn't think so, but he finally told her, he said, why don't you get off that forklift and go give them some cookies or something? So we went up to the house, we ate cookies. See, her dad had this machine that would take, you know, fabric that's, that's printed like your shirts here? This cloth is printed with heat transfer paper. That's how they get the, pa the picture on the cloth and it takes that paper and it runs it through a heat cycle against cloth and it prints it on the fabric. Well, when that paper is used, once it's been printed one time, they take and cut it up into sheets and that's what they stuff in pocketbooks and the toes of shoes and 
wrap pottery and stuff in. Well, her dad had one of those machines that took that paper and cut it into those sheets, and that's why Ginger was running the forklift, moving the paper. And So anyway, we had our cookies. John and I left. Three days later, I get a call from Ginger's mom. Ginger was helping her dad with that machine, and she was up on top of that machine, and her hand got caught in one of the pinch rollers that pulls the paper through to cut it into sheets. And it pulled these three fingers in, and it smashed them until they burst open. Her mom said, I thought you might want to know that Ginger was hurt because you're obviously still a friend. And so, I, of course, I came to see her. Praise the Lord that her dad got the machine stopped before it crushed the bones. And they were able to sew her fingers back together. But if you ever get close to my wife, you'll see she's got scarring on her hands and her fingernails are just a little off on these fingers because of that accident. Well, that visit to come see how she was going actually got us back together. And so I love to tell her mom, thank you for bringing us together. I get to blame mom, right? She said, all you guys hanging around. I said, listen, you're the one that called me. Remember that. So it's fun to pick on her mom. But I'll fast forward through the story. Ginger and I got back together. This was the summer between our sophomore and junior years of high school. And she and I stayed together from that time all the way through high school. I continued church, going to church with her, got back to going to church. And this time coming back to church, it was different. You see... After I had that experience with Jason, Jason told me you ought to read the Bible. (laughs) How's that for a good idea? And so this time I came back to church, guess what? I knew who David was. This time I knew who Samson was. And I was just so intrigued. I sit there and listen to that pastor. And this pastor still serves in the Carolina Conference. And I listened to Pastor Bob. And he was there talking about, in this one sermon he was preaching one day, I was just glued to that brother. I could not take my eyes off of him. And he was talking again about the things Jason had talked to me about, about how Christ had died for us and he had paid the penalty for our sins. And if we really wanted to live and have peace in our life, we had to accept Jesus completely and we needed to make a decision to be baptized. And he did a call. Now you remember, I was a little shy. (laughs) and then he asked people to come forward and friends I can't explain it I felt compelled almost lifted out of my seat and I had to go forward and there in that little church in North Carolina I knelt down and again accepted Jesus Christ and made a decision that I wanted to be baptized did I even know what that meant? But it sounded good and it was what I wanted because here's what I figured out. I finally figured out why those people were so weird. They had Jesus. I finally figured out why this long-haired, messed-up teenager could come into a church, not know anything about anybody, and have a bad attitude. I finally figured out why they could accept me. It's because they knew Jesus. And once I finally figured out what made them different, I wanted to be different. So I wanted Jesus. So I went to church chasing Ginger, not realizing Jesus was chasing me. And as I fell in love with Ginger more deeply, 
I also fell in love with Jesus. Conference evangelist came. He just recently retired. Anybody here know Elder Steve Bell? Elder Steve Bell went to the Carolina Conference to become the conference evangelist because evangelist Del Pollitt retired. In 1992, I know that was millennia ago for some of you, but in 92, Elder Del Pollitt came to our little church and he held a series of evangelistic meetings and I listened to every one of those glued to the screen, glued to his words, and I was just sitting there like, man, this is incredible. Wow, the Bible says that. And I'm just there. It's just, I mean, imagine a dry sponge being put in water for the first time. That's how I was just, just absorbing this stuff. And of course, when they made the call, you know, for those that want to be baptized and accept this truth, I couldn't get my hand up quick enough. And in March, 19, March 13 of 1992, I was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I look at that as my spiritual birthday. And I remember that date. I still have my baptismal certificate. And here's what's cool about it. The lady that was the clerk of the church at that time was Ginger's mother. So here she is. Her signature is on my baptismal certificate along with the pastor who just recently retired in Carolina Conference, Pastor Ken Blake, who baptized me. One of the parts of the story that I want to tell you about is while Jesus was coming into my life and I was making decisions for Him, I also wanted to be in the military. And I had enlisted in the Marine Corps. You can enlist in the Marine Corps or the other branches of service in your junior year of high school and do the delayed entry program. Some of you might be familiar with that. I know you were asking questions about service members, and I see Navy there, so I'll have to dig into you a little deeper. But I wanted to be a Marine. If I was going to be in the service, I wanted to be the baddest there were. And so there I enlisted. My mom had to sign for me to enlist. But in 1992, something strange happened. President Clinton was trying to handle budget battles, and one of the things that he decided to cut was military spending. And so if you go back and look in history, you'll see that in 92, there began a series of base closures across the U.S. And so as you close bases, do you need more people in the military or less? Less. So about two weeks before graduation, I get a phone call from my recruiter. Bentley? Yes, Sergeant. Weight standards have changed. Before you can go into the military, you have to be a certain weight and you have to be able to perform certain physical activities. For the Marine Corps, I had to be at a certain weight. I had to be able to do five pull-ups, a certain number of sit-ups and a certain number of push-ups and do a mile and a half run in so many minutes. I can't remember all the details, but I could do everything and I, my weight was even good until they changed the standard. He called me up and he said, Bentley, you've got to lose 11 pounds in two weeks before you ship to boot camp. Sounds fairly doable, except at that time, I didn't have all the padding that I have now. 
I said, 11 pounds, Sergeant? He said, yeah. So I did everything I could think of. I'm not going to tell you what I did. <laughs> it's not very healthy. But I went down to ship for basic training. But when I got there for weigh-in, I was four pounds overweight. Normally, that's not a big deal. They just send you home a week per pound. Here's the problem. I told you I was in delayed entry. You can only be in delayed entry for a max number of days. My delayed entry had ended on Friday, and here I am at the transfer station on Monday. So he looked at me and he said, boy, we don't need you in the Marine Corps bad enough to send you to Paris Island overweight. Call your mama and get out of my face. How do you think I felt? Crushed. One of the hardest phone calls I ever made was calling my mom to have her drive an hour to Charlotte, North Carolina to pick me up at the military entrance processing station, the MEPS. But who do you think rode with her? Ginger. And I couldn't say anything all the way home. Because there my entire future. Because my plan was to join the Marine Corps, get them to help me pay for college, get an education, stay in the military as a, as a career. All of that was ripped out from under me in a matter of moments. I didn't know what to do. So I started trying to find a job. I ended up flagging traffic. Have you ever drove by somebody flagging traffic? That's about the eighth level of hell is flagging traffic in the Carolina summer sun because it gets hot in North Carolina. So there I am, out of high school, sitting in the blazing sun, no future, except turning this stop sign when equipment would cross the road. Lord, what am I going to do? I was a Christian at this point, but I was a baby Christian. I still had a lot of the world that needed to get out of me. I still had a problem with language. I'd say things that I'd said all my life and heard all my life that I shouldn't say as a Christian. It took time to get over some of these things. So I ended up then jumping from job to job to job. And I would do well at those jobs, make some decent money, but I felt empty. My pastor, praise God, was paying attention. And one Sabbath at church, he came up to me and he said, Daryl, <laughs> it was funny how he asked, he said, what job are you doing now? told him what I was doing. At this time, I was working for a drilling and blasting company. Our job was to drill holes in rock, fill it full of explosives, and blow it up. Have you ever seen 25,000 pounds of explosives go off at one time? It's awesome. It was awesome. But I felt empty. I had to travel a lot. He said, why don't you consider becoming a literature evangelist? A what? A literature evangelist. A call porter. Why don't you consider becoming a call porter? I said, what does a call... What, a what? He, I said, what is that, Pastor? He said, well, you know, you, you've heard us talk about Mrs. White. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, well, we have those, those books from Mrs. White. They're, they're in these special bindings. They're very nicely bound. And, and we have people that go around 
door to door and from home to home, and they sell those books trying to get our message out there. And we even have a, a series of kids' books. I said, so I'd be a book salesman? He said, no. He said, you'd be a literature evangelist. This brother was the salesman, wasn't he? So I got to thinking about it. Literature evangelist. I said, what do I do? He said, I'll have a guy get in touch with you. Short story. Guy calls me, the publishing director. He hooks me up with the district leader. I go out and do my first canvas with him. I was hooked. So for two and a half years, I was a full-time literature evangelist for the Carolina Conference. And I'm going to tell you, I have probably forgotten more miracles than most people will ever experience if you've never canvassed. I remember this one time. I'll tell you one story. I had a lead card. You see, we'd leave Bible story books in the doctor's offices, right? And they had cards people could take and fill out and had this lead card. And I'm in Salisbury, North Carolina. And, and I pull up to the house and it's this old kind of ramshackle house just a little square concrete stoop and two wrought iron handrails going up the porch. And as I, I'm always on the lookout for dogs. Dogs are not always your friend. They're man's best friend, but it's the man that owns the dog, not you. But I get out and I look. The house looks kind of empty, but you know, a lot of times people aren't, don't have a car and you knock. Anyway, I get out and I look, and over here by the tree looks like a heap of carpet kind of mangy, it's black, and, and I see it barely, I go, oh, wait a minute, there's a dog over there. So I make my way around the car, watching this heap of carpet, doesn't even move. I make it all the way to the concrete stoop, and as my foot goes to touch that concrete stoop, that hunk of carpet came alive. And I quickly discovered that this was a chow and if you've ever been around chow dogs, they're crazy. At least my experience has shown that. And here comes this dog. And you have to remember, I had seen Cujo as a kid. <laughs> and so I start having flashbacks. You know, <laughs> And this dog comes across the yard in similar fashion. And here I am on this concrete stoop two wrought iron rails, and the dog is now between me and the car, and the rawr, rawr, he's just tearing across the yard, and all I can do is back up against the door and yell, Jesus, help me. And that dog, God is my witness, came screaming up at that concrete stoop, rawr, 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 rawr. and as it got to the concrete stoop, it was as if somebody smacked it right in the mouth because that dog yelped, fell down on its back haunches and came to a skidding stop and just looked up at me. Thank you, Lord. I'm convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that that dog was permitted to see my guardian angel that day. You'll never convince me otherwise. There was no reason for that dog to stop. It was intent. It was bent on my destruction. The dog sat there, didn't move. I had faith, but I didn't take my eyes off. <laughs> Knocked on the door. Took care of my business. Well, eventually, I lost sight of the blessing 
that being a literature evangelist was. One of the miracles that I forgot to tell you about, because I had a publishing director tell me, he said, you guys are going to see miracle after miracle. The one that he forgot to tell me was how you learn to live with very little money. And I kind of let that get to me because I felt like I should be providing better for my wife, married at this point. And here I didn't have hardly any money to my name, barely paying our bills. In fact, I was so poor. And I think it was because of my faith. It wasn't because God wasn't faithful. And God showed me little, little things about how He was being faithful. You remember before we had cell phones, they had these phones you could put money in. They called them pay phones. Anybody ever seen one of those in a museum? You know what I'm talking about? It took 25 cents to make a phone call. And I had this corner of North Carolina, the northwestern corner. I had 11 counties that was my territory. And I, had a, I was down here and I had a lead card way over here. And I said, Lord, I don't want to drive all the way over there because if, if they're not there and I can't make a sell, I won't have enough gas to get home. And said, Lord, I need to make a phone call. Phone call was 25 cents. I had 15. That's pretty broke, isn't it? So I'm driving, and I see this little country store, and I just feel overwhelmingly impressed. Pull over. Make a phone call. Uh, Lord, I don't have but 15 cents. Make the call. Get out. I've got my 15 cents, and I'm looking around on the ground. Maybe I can find a dime. I walk over to the phone, not knowing what I'm going to do, and just casually took my hand and put it in the change return. What do you think I found lying in the change return? Ten cents. I had 15. The Lord didn't need to give me a quarter. I only needed 10 more cents to make my phone call. And I started crying. Tell me God doesn't care about you. He gave me just what I needed. I called. The people were home. I drove. The Lord blessed me with a sale. I not only had enough money to get gas, but I had enough money to pay my rent, and the Lord took care of us. But eventually I felt like I needed to make a change, and so I went into this cycle of going job to job again. Finally, in 2002, I decided I needed to go back to school. I needed to go to college. I needed to get an education. Ginger had done a business degree. She was working and I said, I need to go to college. And I have a natural affinity with electronics and computers. I had taught myself at this point how to write uh, HTML code for websites and some JavaScripting and stuff like that. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'll go into computers. That seems to be where my gifts are. I try to go to school two different places for computers, for computer science, IT. And every time I tried to go to school, the door kept getting shut. Classes weren't available, program wasn't offered, because you know, by this point I have some kids. And I had to, had to go to school when I could go to school and work and raise my kids. But I had this overwhelming sense that God was preparing me for something. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not very fatalistic, but I thought perhaps God was preparing me to die. And so I did what many a good Christian would do. I called my pastor and said, I've got some heavy things on my heart. Can I come talk with you? Great guy. His name's Pastor Ron Patterson. He's serving right now in uh, West Virginia. Pastor Ron said, yeah, come on in. 
And I sat there and I started pouring my heart out to Pastor Ron. And the more I shared with him, the more he smiled. Now, if there's anything I've learned in pastoral ministry, it's when someone's pouring out your heart, you usually don't laugh at them. Amen, brethren? But here I am, I'm pouring my heart out to Pastor Ron. Pastor, this is happening, this is happening, and, and Lord, the Lord's preparing me for something. I'm not sure what it is, but I think maybe He's going to lay me to rest, and so I want to know how to take care of my family. And the more I smiled, the more I talked, the more He smiles. And finally, I looked at the brother and I said, I'm pouring my heart out and all you can do is laugh at me. And then he chuckled. He said, Daryl, you just don't see it, do you? I said, what are you talking about? He said, the Lord's calling you to be a pastor. I immediately stood up, shook his hand, and left. I didn't want anything to do with being a pastor. I had been close to several of my pastors, and I saw just how hard the saints could be on him. So I said, you know what? I'm happy running the soundboard, being a deacon, helping take care of the church. You can have that pastor mess. Pastor Ron called me a couple days later. He said, you left kind of quickly. I said, well, you had bad news. I said, I was good. I didn't need to hear bad news. He said, Daryl, would you at least do this? He said, would you at least pray about it? I said, I guess that's fair enough, preacher. And so I began to pray about it. And I made a deal with the Lord. I said, Lord, and by this time I knew who William Miller was, right? So I said, I'm going to pull a slick one on the Lord. William Miller got asked to preach out of nowhere. Do you know the story? He's just there kind of doing his business. He had been studying about the second coming and all that. And some brother shows up and says, hey, will you come preach? I said, I'm going to do that to God. I said, Lord, if you want me to be a preacher you've got to have somebody ask me to preach. Never spoken in my life except with the Sabbath school class or whatever. And I wrote this sermon. <laughs> I call it a sermon, but you know what I mean. It was, it was that sermon. And I started to pray. I didn't tell Ginger about this. I didn't, I didn't need her praying and muddying up the waters for me, right? <clears throat> she had a better connection with the Lord than I did. I didn't want her to mess me up. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell Ginger. I didn't tell Pastor Ron. But I wrote this pitiful sermon and I prayed. First week, nobody called me to preach. Second week, I thought I was in the clear. We got invited over to Pastor Ron's house for Vespers. And we're sitting there and, and, and I was a little bit of a smart aleck in those days. In those days. In those days. <laughs> I may have a tinge of it left. But we're there, and Pastor Ron, you know, we're all just having a good time. We'd had a little sundown worship, and finally he looks at me, and he says, Daryl, where are you going to be next week? I said, what do you mean? He said, next Sabbath. And I looked at him, I said, I'll be in church. Where will you be? He said, man, I'm so glad to hear that. I said, why? I had forgotten about my deal with the Lord. He said, because I was wondering if you would have the service next week. Now, if you know me, it is very hard to catch me and me not have something to say to you. Because of my experience with my stepfather, my experiences with people, I'm pretty quick on my feet. I couldn't say anything. I got ghostly white 
And nobody in the room knew what had just happened but me. Pastor Ron looked at me, and here, here's something else you've got to realize about my home church in North Carolina, the Hickory Church. It was a one-church district, and so the pastor was there almost every week, and when he wasn't there, there was a line from here to the door of elders and deacons and people that were just dying to get into the pulpit. And so I looked at Pastor Ron, and I said, did, did you not ask your elders? He said, none of the elders are available. I said, what about the deacons? He said, you're a deacon. I said, no, I mean the ones that, 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 you, the ones that normally preach. He said, they're not available. He said, I was praying about it. And he said, the Lord told me that I should ask you. So I gave that first pitiful sermon. And that began a journey where I began to get asked to speak around our little area there in North Carolina. And then that was May of 2002. And it was a year later, in the summer of 2003, I found myself sitting in a class in Southern Adventist University called Life and Teachings of Jesus. And I can tell you that I am so thankful that God answers prayer even when we don't want them answered. But you know, even though I was accepting a call to ministry by following my education, I was still pretty messed up. In fact, when I felt that I did have this call to ministry, I went to see my ministerial director in Carolina Conference, Elder oh, Jim. I can't even think of his last name right now. I can see his face. Um, he's in the Southern Union. He's the Southern Union president. I can see his face. Anyway, I went to see Elder Jim. He's the one that told me I should go to Southern. And do you know what went through my mind when he told me that I believe you're called to ministry too, that you ought to go to Southern? First thing that went through my mind was, well, I know about Jesus. I know what I believe. Why do I need to go to school? You can see I still had some arrogance. I still had some things that, the, 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 those, those rough edges. And I remember sitting in Life and Teachings of Jesus taught by Dr. Judd Lake. And I remember it dawning on me just how much I didn't know about the Bible. And that began a journey, praise God, of, of education. Graduated from Southern. Praise God for that. Currently about to start work on a master's. I'm thankful for that. Because I don't ever want to stop learning about Jesus. So tonight, as I close, why did I choose to own it? Well, because I already had ownership in death. Because here's the reality of it, guys. You already own a future. If you don't choose Christ, guess which future you own? It's a future of destruction. It's a future of, of loss. It's a future of death. It's a future of no hope. You automatically own that by virtue of your existence. But what I realized was I didn't want to own that future. I want to own a better future. I want to own a future that gives me hope, that gives me something to look forward to, that gives me a reason to live. Do you know why so many people turn to drugs, to alcohol, to illicit sexual behaviors, 
Do you know why people get so wrapped up into that stuff? Because there's an emptiness inside their heart. There's an emptiness in their life and they desperately are trying to fill it with something and they don't realize, just like I didn't realize, they don't realize that what they really need is Jesus. They don't realize that what they really need is a saving relationship. And, and guys, it's not about making a checklist. Well, I keep the Sabbath. I, you know, I read Spirit of Prophecy. I, I know the state of the dead. I can tell you about the sanctuary. It's not a checklist. You know, I, can, I, I haven't had meat pass through my lips in 40 years or something. It's not a checklist. It's a saving relationship with Christ. Now, is it good to keep the Sabbath? Absolutely. Does keeping the Sabbath save you? Is it good to eat healthy? Does eating healthy save you? You're not going to get to heaven one bite at a time. Okay? You're not going to get to heaven one Sabbath at a time. You're going to get to heaven having a saving relationship with Jesus. You're going to get to heaven by choosing to own your faith. So why do I keep the Sabbath? Because that's my faith and I love Jesus. Why do I try to put decent things into my body? Because I own my faith and I love Jesus. Why do I believe in the state of the dead or the sanctuary or the second coming or spirit of prophecy? Because I own my faith. And it's not just somebody else's. It's not just Ginger's faith. <laughs> it's my faith. So I want to challenge you. And I want to ask you the question. Do you own your faith? Is it your faith? Or is it your mom's faith? Do you own your faith or is it dad's faith? Is it your buddy's faith? Is it so-and-so's faith? Is it your pastor's faith? Or is it yours? Have you laid claim to it? And if you haven't, why not? What are you waiting for? Why would you wait any longer? Because I'm going to tell you something. As I look around, I see people, I see young people, I see you who God just wants to do powerfully and wonderful things through you. Do you believe that? If he can take a messed up country boy who has a legacy of moonshiners and junkyarders, if God can work through me, imagine what he can do with you if you're not as messed up as I was. You might not have as much garbage to overcome as I have that I'm still trying in many areas that I have to pray every day and say, Lord, take that from me. Let Him use you. But I want to ask you as I close, do you want to own it? Do you want it to be yours? Do you want Jesus to be your Savior? Do you want the Adventist faith to be your faith? And I want to ask you, if that's your desire tonight, I want to ask you to come down and stand with me this evening. I'm not just going to have you raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to come down and stand with me because I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you because I want you to have the joy of knowing Jesus that I have. We have time for you. If that's your desire tonight, I want you to come down here with us. Let's gather together and Take somebody's hand, would you? Grab somebody's hand. Don't let anybody stand by themselves. We don't have to form a circle, but just grab somebody's hand. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Loving Father, Lord, thank You for saving me. 
Thank you for a church family that was willing to love me as a messed up teenager. Thank you for Ginger's mom and dad who didn't kick me out. They embraced me. They put up with me. They modeled what it means to love Jesus for me. Father, I thank you for Ginger who had the courage to stand up for her faith even as a 15-year-old girl. Father, tonight I thank you for those that have made decisions to own their faith this evening. They don't want to sit on the sidelines. They don't want to look at their faith from a distance. They don't want it to be just mom and dad's faith or their buddy's faith. Father, they want it to be their faith this evening. And so, Father, they have stepped forward. They've made the decision to own it. And Lord, I just pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that You would come into our hearts, my heart, their hearts. And Father, take away everything that's wicked, everything that's against You, everything that keeps our character from reflecting the character of Christ. And Father, maybe we don't even know what that means, but we know this much, that we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Him. We want to live like Him. And Father, we want to follow Your teachings, Your truth. So Lord, I pray that that desire would burn in our hearts now and forevermore. And that You would be glorified as we live on this earth for You. But Lord, may this group, may this group right here, standing here right now, be part of the group that hastens Your soon return. Because tonight, we have taken ownership in our faith. And so Lord, we praise You. We thank You. We glorify You. And we ask these mercies and these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.